Welcome to the world's premier Black Crows podcast. State of America. Hosted by two of the band's most dedicated fans, David Hudson and Ian Rice. And now, let's get the show on the road. All right, everybody, welcome back to another episode of the State of America podcast. I am one of your hosts, Ian Rice, and with me, as always, Mr. David Hudson. David, how are you doing, sir? Better than I deserve, Ian. Better than I deserve. You deserve the very best, so I don't want to hear that. So I'm getting better than the best. I'm getting you. All right, you little rascal. You know how to sweet talk people, don't you? So this, uh, you know, this we're here. is very exciting. This episode's going to uh, showcase our interview, or I should say your interview, with author Alan Paul on his latest book, Brothers and Sisters, covering the Brothers and Sisters time period of the Allman Brothers band. This is his second book about the Allman Brothers, and a very good read by all accounts, including ours. But I wasn't able to make the interview at the last minute, so you did this one solo. On the fly, Ian. That's right. That's how you, that's how we that's how we survive best. As Bill O'Reilly would say, we're doing it live. Want to thank uh Naptown Jimmy, also known as uh Jim Hennessy, one of our loyal patrons, uh for actually pretty much getting this set up for us. Yes, he was instrumental in that. And also, you know, the timing of it is perfect. He's got the book coming out and uh sent us a couple of advanced copies and uh, uh just a great read. I mean, uh, you enjoyed the the book the book quite a bit, didn't you? I did. We recorded this probably two months ago. And so he asked us to sit on it to the 25th. And so here it is, the 25th. Here we are. The, the, the book 25th. is out. It's called Brothers and Sisters. It's a great read. It isn't so much about the album as more like what was going on with the band around that time and how the album basically saved their career. Yeah. I mean, it's it's an odd album because it's very popular for them, but it doesn't, it came after, you know, the Dwayne Allman period. And, and you know, it's like this version of the band that that you know in hindsight everybody seems to love so much like really wasn't the most commercially viable version of the band the most commercially viable version of the band was this 1973-ish period around brothers and sisters i mean this album's loaded with songs that everybody knows i had a really good time with him um i think it's one of the better interviews i've been a part of and uh he was super cool to us he sent us um five books and posters to give away on patreon you have not joined us on that you will not be disappointed if you join yeah things are always uh heating up over there at patreon we got some exciting let's, things let's going give on. them an example of what's going out in the last month we got uh rich robinson paper new sealed vinyl i sent out three mark ford signed posters that our buddy jim galvin sent me i sent out a very rare black crows concert poster what all of you sent out uh, I dipped my hand into the t-shirt hole that we got along with our poster hole and uh, gave out a few of those. I had I found some old magpie mule compilations I made. I sent those out. Just all kinds of stuff. A couple of records. Not only Black Crow stuff, too. You know, on, on Patreon, we do um, a lot of bonus features, including our SOA Album Club, where we do a roundtable discussion about a quote-unquote classic album, the last one being Bruce Springsteen's Born to Run. Uh, you fan of Bruce Springsteen, David, or he's pretty good. I don't know how deep he got in. You know what I'm saying? But uh, so you know, with that, we had a giveaway for a vinyl copy of the album. So we do all kinds of cool things over there. It's well worth the price of admission, in my opinion, and in the opinion of a lot of other people as well. 
Yeah. And we do a, a bonus Patreon radio. I just did one on the solo career of Jerry Kentrell. Yep. And uh, we also do bonus episodes. Our buddy, Jason Donces, we cannot thank him enough. He has taken over a lot of the editing for these big podcasts and our Patreon podcast. And uh, we would not be in the shape we're in right now without him. No, I mean, Jason is is the third member of this podcast at this point and does a lot, a lot of behind the scenes stuff to help us out. And uh, we're happy to have him on board. Yeah, you'll see him popping on here with us every now and then. Other than that, Ian, <clears throat> supposedly the, the Crows have recorded an album in Nashville. I guess we'll see what it's going to be. I am anxiously awaiting to hear new music. Yeah, I mean, as always, you know, I, I try not to get uh, too anxious on it because you never know exactly when it's going to happen. But, you know, I feel like something will be forthcoming. Yeah, and they have some off time in between those Aerosmith dates. What better way to spend that time than mixing an album? Well, I mean, yeah. So other than that, Ian, do we have anything? No, just uh, stay tuned for some more new episodes coming out. There's a few uh, few things in the pipeline that we think you're going to enjoy. But uh, Yeah, we lined up a cool interview this weekend. It may be our, maybe in two episodes, and then we've got one coming out uh, that's going to definitely get people talking in a good way. Absolutely, absolutely. But speaking of getting people talking, why don't we flip on over to where you got Alan Paul talking and check out your interview with him. We hope everybody enjoys it, and we'll see you next time. everybody ask and you shall receive for the last three or four years everybody's been asking us to get alan paul on the podcast and we finally had a reason to have him on he's our first new york times best-selling author actually he's done it twice uh did my research earlier today so uh alan welcome to the podcast thank you thanks for having me and um thanks for whoever it was out there who who asked for me i appreciate that people have actually been asking us since we started and wow. um very well respected in the Crows community and obviously the Almond Brothers community and all of this kind of music that we all enjoy so much. Yeah, thank you. That's very nice to hear. So you've got a new book coming out, Brothers and Sisters, obviously about the uh, album Brothers and Sisters by the Almond Brothers, which is the one that took them kind of from cult favorites to superstardom when it came out. Obviously, you, you wrote the previous book on the Almond Brothers. What made you dial in on this period well a um, couple of things it's it's funny because it began with a conversation with um brad talinsky's good friend of mine longtime uh guitar world editor who's written some great books on eddie van halen and the history of the electric guitar and on jimmy page and brad and i were talking a couple of years ago and he was asking me what i was going to do next and i had some ideas some things i was working on and i said i kind of think i need to do something outside the almond brothers 
world. And Brad was like, why? <laughs> you know, why would you do that? So I said, well, I'm just so associated with them. I have a lot of other interests and things I'd like to do. And Brad was like, dude, you know, it's amazing that like, you know, you're considered the top expert on a band that people really care about and love. You know so much. You have such passion for them. And also, I think Brothers and Sisters is unexplored. And um, I was on a long car ride. Brad and I spoke for like an hour. And at the end of my car ride, I was like, God damn, Brad is right. And uh, so I started pulling together my ideas. I called up some people I respected, like Kirk West, um, longtime Almond Brothers, uh, tour mystic and 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 also uh, was very close with the crows by the way um and, and my agent and bert holman you know and everybody thought it was a great idea so um i just started digging in and the, the final book ended up quite a bit different than what brad had sort of envisioned um so it's not it's not exactly what he what he was talking about but it was 100 his concept and idea that got me going on it so thank you brad he has helped me multiple times uh through my career and this was another one because it didn't take me too long once I got started um, on doing this book to realize it had the potential to be something really good and, and really, really different than the first one. That was one of my concerns. Like, gee, can I really do another Almond Brothers book and make it be different? And and I know it's a normal thing for a reader thinking about buying the book or what you, you know to, to ask. I don't I'm not offended by that at all. I mean, it was my own question, um, and the answer is yes. <laughs> it's a completely different book. And I'm really, really glad I did it. I had a lot of fun and worked really hard on it. When you go to start something like this, do you approach members of their camp to make sure it's okay? Or do you just go ahead and go along with it? Because you are so intertwined with them. I kind of thought maybe you'd at least put a feeler out to them. Um, A little bit of both. That was more of a consideration when the Allman Brothers were ongoing. It was a little different with, with One Way Out. Um, I think I think it's, this is a good question because a lot of people don't really understand their relationship and how this works, and they don't really have the ability to stop me. And 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 in this case, just just you know, to be clear, that means any any writer writing about anyone or any any band or artist or whatever, they can't stop you. But you you know, I've had a long, I've had a thirty year relationship with most of these guys, and always played the long game. You know, sat on some information here or there to maintain relationships. And um, certainly while the Almer Brothers were ongoing, which they were when I did One Way Out, I would have had to really think hard if there was a strong objection to it. Um, but, but you know, they are history now, just as much as Led Zeppelin are history, or Abraham Lincoln, for that matter, or Lyndon Johnson, or whoever. Um, so I, I think it's open. But but obviously, it's it's helpful to have the support um, and and it's easier, not just with them, but in general, to have people talk to me. Um, I have a lot more credibility. Um, one Way Out was my second book, but my first one was a memoir called Big in China, about my time living in China for three and a half years. Um, it's, a lot of people didn't, they didn't, it's the only one that wasn't a bestseller. People didn't know that as much. So when I was doing One Way Out, I, I was sort of the guy from Guitar World. Um, writing a book. And then people really liked that book. It was successful. So when I wrote Texas Flood, I came after that a biography of Steve Ray Vaughan, it was easier to have credibility and get people to talk to me and, and more so now. So it it, it really wasn't an issue. But um, if anyone had really objected, I would have had to, you know, consider what that meant. That's kind of the way we've done things. Um, you don't want to burn any bridges and you don't want to take advantage of anybody either. And so uh, 
I understand you approaching it that way. Yeah. So, I mean, long before I was writing the books or anything, there are certain people um, that I've interviewed over and over and over again. Um, and, and I develop a relationship that that is friendly and, and sometimes actually becomes a friendship. Um, it, it doesn't really happen that often. Um, although, but, you know, you have good relationships with people and that counts for a lot. Um, Warren Haynes is a good example. One guy I would actually call a friend. I mean, I've been to his house and, you know, what, he's an actual friend. I mean, we we sometimes text each other, talk about other things. But very early with Warren, I told him, I could see there were times where he was wondering if he should say something to me. And so I told him, look, Warren, if we're talking and it's not an interview, it's 100% off the record. And if I want to use something, you tell me, I'll ask you, is this cool to print? And I'll take that a step further. When we're doing interviews, I'll say to him, if you want to stop and take something off the record, you can do that, which is is really not how journalism works strictly. I mean, certainly like in political journalism, you, you don't do that. Um, I thought it was important. I, th- I thought that there was greater value for me and for my readers. And anytime I interview someone, I always try to remember I'm interviewing them for the readers, not for myself. Um, I'm, I'm the conveyance vehicle to get this information to people. And I feel like they it, it, it behooves, benefits them for me to keep my relationship. And I want Warren or whoever to talk freely. And it, very, very rarely do they say... Um, Oh, wait a second. I, I don't want to say that in print. It, it has happened a couple of times, but very, very, very rarely. But but, it, but it, it does, I think the knowledge that they can do that makes people feel more relaxed and open up more. We always offer people the final edit and let them listen to it if they want to. And You tell us what to cut out and, and we'll cut out. And like you said, that builds trust because they know you're not out to get on the front page of the National Enquirer with them. And, and right. that goes a long way. All right. One of the things I like about the book is it's not just a straightforward narrative, so to speak. You veer off in different directions, like a little history on the Grateful Dead and their relationship with the Amin brothers and then the Cameron Crow part. I'll get to the Cameron Crow part because I'm fascinated by that. Was that something you set out to do or did you start writing and going, maybe I can go in this direction a bit and go in this direction a bit and then come back to the almonds? A little bit of both. <laughs> um, I did. I did have the concept that I was going to do that um, before I started, and that's one of the reasons that um, I was so interested in this era. And that's where it varied a little bit from, from, like I mentioned, from from the original concept Brad had. He was a little more focused directly on the album. And as I started thinking about it, how they were in the middle of so much, then they were in the middle of the American culture. Um, in a way, they really never were again before or after. The, uh, great music. I love every, most everything before and after. But in, during this period, um, and, and the the book is called Brothers and Sisters, uh, obviously. As I started getting into it, I actually wanted to change the name. Um, I was going to change the name to Come and Go Blues, um, which would follow the pattern of One Way Out in Texas Flood or picking a you know a song title that, that resonated beyond the song title. But um, my, my um, editor felt really strong. He loved brothers and sisters and wanted to keep the title. And we, you know, he talked me into it. But the reason I wanted to change the title was just because I do think it's much broader than the album. And it's natural for someone, if you see this title, to think it's a it's like a 33 and a third deep dive into the making of the album, which it is. But that's just like a tiny part of it. So. It was a little bit of both, but even even having said all that, once I started doing it, I did it more than I realized I would, because things that I thought maybe would be like a sentence of explanation or a paragraph or something were so interesting, they became multiple pages or even 
chapter. So yeah, I feel really good about that. And actually, I'm glad you you brought that up. I appreciate it because, um, it, and that again, it is a reflection of how central they were to the culture. So none of these tangents or little rabbit holes I go down are on. They're they're all completely related to the Almond Brothers and the and the Brothers and Sisters era, and everything ties back together. So yeah, that was that was an interesting challenge, and you know, to make it all into one narrative flow while doing that. I just got through reading Warren Zane's new book on Bruce Springsteen's Nebraska. And it's like you said, it's, it's just zeroed in that specific album. And if you look at the title of this, you think it's just going to be about this album. But like you said, the album is just kind of the reason to write the book. And then you you have the before and the after and great history lessons in there. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. I appreciate the chance to even have this conversation because it is something I really want to convey about the book. And I'm not completely convinced that I wasn't right when I wanted to change the name to Come and Go Blues. So we'll see how it is all received and how it comes out. But I, I think I think the more I talk about it and people will talk about it, they'll, you know, that will become clear. Well, one of the things that I didn't know, I'm a casual Almond Brothers fan. I've seen them two or three times. I like their music, have some of their vinyl, but I don't know them like i would say like i know the crows and and some other bands one of the things i did not realize was they played three weeks after Dwayne died now you look at other bands like let's take the foo fighters for instance taylor hawkins dying they're not playing in three weeks other bands that have had you know somebody die yeah. like that do you think that was just their way of grieving or do you think they were just in like in some state of shock because that is quick Especially when one of them's your um, brother. Yeah, I think it was both. I think it was both. Actually, I think they. I, I think that was their way of grieving. I think that they, you know, they very briefly considered taking six months off and deciding what to do, and spent like half a day sitting at home, and everyone just kind of naturally gravitated back to their rehearsal space. Um, because I, so I, I think they were sort of in a state of shock. And the idea of not being together was unbearable. So the only way they could really deal with it was by being together, even though it was completely weird (laughs) being together. Because, um, you know, Dwayne is a fascinating character. Um, He was the undisputed leader of the band. He was the the center that kept everyone everyone rotated around, which, which I think most people know. But he didn't write songs, really. He didn't sing. Uh, that's pretty unusual. Uh, I guess Carlos Santana is sort of similar. I, I don't know exactly what his relationship is to the everyone in the band. I don't. I just don't know it well enough. But Dwayne was was pretty unusual. So they could keep going because he wasn't the singer, you know. So so what that 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 would be the first thing for for most bands, you know. With like when the when Jerry Garcia died, you know, he was Dwayne and Greg together. I mean, he was the leader of the band. He was the guitarist. He was the singer. Because of the unusual structure, it was possible to keep going but it 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 probably seemed virtually impossible and that whole first year before they added chuck lavelle which which i you know talk about it before they added chuck they played for a year as a five piece um with the same exact band minus Dwayne. and um there's some really good recordings of it there's a good show from uh, macon city auditorium that the band put out themselves and a lot of people like them they have some more coming out I find them really sad. I find them hard to listen to those five piece uh, band performances because they just it sounds so sad to me. And and that's what Butch Truck said uh, that they knew the reason they knew they had to add someone who became Chuck was they were focused on the negativity 
of they, they were focused on the absence, you know. And, and there's a line that I think was from maybe an old ad that was in the Ken Kesey book, Sometimes a Great Notion, that they, they repeat a lot that I always like, which is uh, watch the donut and not the hole, you know, which is like forest in the trees type right. of thing. Yeah, so I think with when Dwayne, that during that year when Dwayne was gone, they were all looking at the hole, not the donut. And so having Chuck come in with this really strong instrumental voice gave him something new and a whole new life and a whole new start. So I look at that first year as like a holding pattern, like proving they can still be together. Well, one of the things that that I picked up on early was Dickie Betts became the leader of the band, and it wasn't something he set out to do. It was almost like he was the de facto leader because Barry Oakley was in bad shape. Greg, from what I get, that didn't seem like Greg's personality at the time. Am I correct in that assumption? Yeah, Greg is not a a, a leader type of guy. What was wasn't really a, t- a leader type of guy, but neither was Dicky. That's that was sort of the problem. <laughs> but but Greg, you know, it, it's obviously the most people know Greg struggled with substance um, issues for most of his for much of his adult life. And in the aftermath of Dwayne's death, he was really lost. I mean, he OD'd on the night that Dwayne died. He came very close to dying. And and Barry Oakley flipped over his car and almost came close to dying. So it's it's hard to even as as insane as it is what they did, it's even wilder to contemplate that it came pretty close to three of them dying essentially in one day. But that's reflective of Greg and, and Barry's state. Um Greg rallied musically and was, you know, obviously, you know, he wrote Ain't Wasting Time No More and recorded Melissa, uh, which he had written a couple of years prior in the immediate, you know, the first time they got back in the studio to finish Eat a Peach. Um, so musically, he was he was still going at a pretty high level. But Tom Dowd, who, who produced that album and several other the guys told me that while Greg was strong musically during Eat a Peach, he was otherwise absent. He didn't talk to anyone. He played his music and then sort of sat almost in a catatonic state. So the only way it really could continue, someone had to step up. Um, Butch and Jamo aren't really, weren't really the types of it. Butch sort of was, but they were the drummers. I mean, that doesn't happen too often. Uh, Oakley was in, in really bad shape. Greg was in bad shape. So Dickie, who wasn't a natural leader in that regard, stepped forward. And there ended up being some real problems with the way he led things, but I think he needs to get the credit for doing it at all. I mean, it it it, it would have fallen apart without that. And and Dickie's a complex, complex character, which I, I I think and I hope comes across pretty thoroughly in this book. He, he had pretty violent mood swings, and a lot of it also was substance related. If he drank or did cocaine, he could get into some really weird, difficult to deal with places. But he was always, you know, a difficult personality who would sort of check out for times and get depressed and get down on himself. You know, get a lot of that was draw, driven by his own sort of insecurity, I think. And Dwayne would, would as, as uh, Tom Doucette, the harmonica player who played with him a lot, described it to me. Dwayne would go up to Dickie and when he was like that, put his arm around him and say, come on, Haas, you know, shake it off. We need you. You, you know, you're great. You're the greatest guitarist. I know. Come on, man, get in there and let's go. And it, and he'd get over it. But nobody else could do that with Dickie. That was another big loss from Dwayne, aside from all the other obvious losses, was, you know, Dickie wrangling. Well, <laughs> so and, and one of the stories in the book is Dwayne, I forget who it was, was going to watch him from the side stage. And he said, Dickie's the one you need to watch. Yeah. He's- that was Jeff Hanna from the uh, Nitty Gritty Dirt Band, who was an old friend of Dwayne's. And 
hadn't gotten to see the band because they were both you know touring all the time which is you know happens with bands like we all see our the bands we love more than they see each other and that's why they like festivals so much sometimes yeah so jeff hannah finally caught up and, and they had a nice visit backstage and then Dwayne said to him well when the show starts here's my advice keep your eye on dickie betts i'm the one doing the skate but he's the one playing the incredible stuff so well, it also blew my mind that once Dwayne died, Dickie was so insecure about his electric slide playing. And, and he, right. I, you know, it says in there that well, he felt very confident acoustic slide, but electric slide, he was very insecure about, which seems hard to believe now looking back on yeah. it. Yeah. Well, that's, that's true. But I, I think for perspective is just imagine, oh, I don't know. I'm about to make like a million bad analogies. So I, I you know, I should probably just let it go. But, but, you know, Dwayne was, by most people's reckoning, you know, one of the greatest rock slide guitarists ever, you know, I could, I could break them all down and compare different guys, but you know, the other, other, you know, you've got Ry Cooter was incredible. Jesse Ed Davis, who was a guy who really inspired Dwayne, um, Johnny Winter, you know, these are the the, the guys to me are, who are the pantheon Lloyd, Lowell George from Little Feet. I'm, I'm sure I'm leaving some people out and people get mad, but you know, Dwayne is, is up there and for most people was the best. So it's not like Dickie couldn't play slide guitar, but it was that he had stood next to the pinnacle, you know, for night after night. And it wasn't his thing. You know, he watched this guy do this incredible thing. So it's like. It's like replacing Derek Jeter at shortstop for the Yankees. Yeah. Maybe you were the third baseman and like you were, but and, and I mean, like Jimmy Herring, you know, who, who told me he doesn't play slide. I mean, Jimmy Herring is one of the greatest guitarists of our era. For me, I mean, he's technically as great as anyone, but he also has this great blues feel and never never loses feeling. And um, I was talking to him about playing slide years ago, and he said, oh, I used to play slide, but I stopped the first time I ever played with Derek, who was like 14 or 15. And I said, <laughs> what? What are, you, what are you talking about? He said, oh, yeah. I mean, when I saw Derek, I said, he's operating at a level that I'm never really going to reach because I'm 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 just, you know. I haven't focused enough on it. And, and um, I thought that was kind of absurd because uh, Jimmy is such a great player. Um, I never heard him play slide. I'm sure he was great. He doesn't do anything that's not great. But I think it's 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 just relevant because, like, that was Jimmy's perspective. He's not like, oh, no, this guy is like a, a slide master. And Jimmy is a master guitarist, and so he doesn't want to play slide if he can't be a master. And I think that that was more like what Dickie was thinking. And remember that, you know, he didn't, well, they didn't write too many songs with new slide parts. Um, they did do some, like Wasted Words, which is the first song on Brothers and Sisters has slide, Ain't Wasting Time No More, uh, For Me to Peach, which was one of the first things they recorded post Dwayne. Uh, Dickie wrote a slide part. But mostly what he was, when he had to play slide, um, was like Statesboro Blues or things like that. Live, he was had to play Dwayne's parts. And so he couldn't really even start to establish his own voice. So I, I don't know. I that, I'm I'm giving you a lot of explanation to go back to your original question. I agree with you. He clearly was, you know, a brilliant guitarist in his own right who played slide really well and certainly better than anyone knew he All could. Right. You know? So from reading the book, the person that I think is an unsung hero and the secret MVP of this whole thing is Lamar Williams steps in for Barry Oakley. And one of the things I thought was interesting was said that he could play parts that would have made Dickie happy and parts that would make Greg happy. 
right. and that and that he just fit right in. Jamo's old friend from Gulfport was in the band, and it just seems like it seems like the band would have had a hard time with anybody else because it sounds like he just made everybody happy. Yeah. You know, I, I, I got to tell you, the questions you're asking are making me happy because you're, you picked up things that I would want people to pick up reading the book. So you're a very astute reader. So thank you. And I hope it's also a signal that other people are going to get this stuff. Yes. Everything you said, I agree with, um, you know, that quote about uh, being able to make both Greg and Dickie happy actually was was a quote from O'Teal. You know, I, I Who talked would to know? <laughs> yeah, and and I mean O'Teal had to do that. Um, he only played with Dickie, I guess, for about four years because then that the split happened, and he played with Greg for another uh, what fourteen. But it, it's an interesting thing because they did have very different visions of bait, what they wanted in a bass. Um, Barry Oakley was a very non-traditional bass player in in the in the mold of phil lash and jack cassidy from uh hot tuna jefferson airplane and that was very much where he came from he came into the almond brothers with dickie Betts. they were they had played in the band second coming um also with larry reinhardt who went on to be in captain beyond and iron butterfly <laughs> and uh reese winans who ended up with stevie ray vaughn years later so pretty cool band and so Oakley was Dickie's guy, you know, and that's where that he was coming from. And um, he wanted a bass player, whoever it was, uh, in this case, Lamar, to step up and play like Oakley. Greg has always favored a more in-the-pocket traditional bass player, as evidenced in his solo band. Greg was just developing his his, his own musical identity and what he wanted in a bass player. But Lamar was able to to do both. He was a more of a rooted pocket player than Barry was. Um, he had come from a more traditional R&B background, and it, you know, but he was in the army. He played in a military band. He played everything. He was that kind of guy. I mean, he could have walked into any bar, anywhere, any theater, any club, any arena, and played with virtually any band. He could play jazz. He could play blues. He could play country. He could play rock. I'm sure if he had ever tried, he could have played heavy metal. What you know, any whatever, whatever the gig was, he would have listened and played appropriately. And he was just a really chill guy, you know. <laughs> so that that's also important. I mean, it's it's. Um, I think in all walks of life, you know, being a good, anything collaborative, being a good hang is worth a lot. Um, and walking into such a loaded situation, you know, takes a certain amount of confidence. You know, geez, you look at the Grateful Dead and they've had all the, they went through all these keyboardists and some of them really suffered from lack of confidence and, and, and struggled their whole time in the band. And that was just never an issue with Lamar. And, and it was just his personality. And also, of course, partly because he was so close with JMO. I feel like those guys like Lamar that played on that those circuits back then, they could handle anything thrown at them. Kind of like Ed Harsh, you know, played with James Cotton. He gets into the Crows. He can handle anything they throw at him, you know. Yeah, that's Ed, a good – Ed is a good example. I saw Ed years ago with James Cotton. Um, and I, when, um, when I first saw him with the Crows, actually, I didn't realize – I had no vision that it was the same guy. I mean, I, I probably wasn't super tuned in to like – the keyboard player in Cotton, other than the whole band was great, including him. But when I made that connection and realized it, and then I looked at pictures of what he looked like then and everything, I was like, oh, yeah. But yeah, no, you're exactly right. Those guys, Ed, Ed is a great example. He He's another guy who could have thrown in, dropped into virtually anything and made it sound better. There was a tradition of that, that that's a little bit broken because there's just not the same kind of live music circuit that there was that those guys came up in. You know, 
Lamar dropped out of school when he was 14, um, as did Dwayne. And, and it's fascinating to talk about that with J-Mo because J-Mo constantly say uh, that Dwayne and Lamar were two of the smartest guys he ever knew. Neither of them had more than a ninth grade education because they were so focused on the music. Um, there's also a reflection of the fact, you know, Dwayne even was kicking around and like just trying to get gigs. He Dwayne played bass in a strip club band for a while. I mean, <laughs> Lamar was actually like the first call bass player down in the Gulf uh, Coast music scene by the time he was 14 or 15. Apparently he had some fake ID and according to Jamo, he looked really old. He had a full beard <laughs> by the time he was 15. One of those guys, you know, so... Um, nobody really even took note of him. He didn't look like a little kid. And he carried himself like that, you know. He was he was still pretty young when he came into the Allman Brothers. He was five years younger than J-Mo, so I'm not going to do the math off the top of my head, but he was in his early 20s when he joined. All right, so you mentioned the laid-back album, Greg Allman's debut solo album. I was going to ask you this because he was teetering back and forth at the same time recording both albums. And you talk about in the book, the creative direction went more Dickie Betts way. Obviously it's a little more country sounding than, than the other ones were. And it seemed like Greg's focus at times was more on like laid back. And then he would show up and do his parts for the almonds. And then talks about, you know, he would some days he'd almost work around the clock working on t- both albums. Do you think that had his head been fully in the game on brothers and sisters, that it would have sounded dramatically different? And if it sounded dramatically different, do you think that would have been for the better? Well, that's a good question. Um, You know, yes, it would have sounded dramatically different. Maybe, maybe it forestalled an inevitable clash between Greg and Dickie. Because Greg had this other thing that he was really focused on, he sort of let Dickie run with brothers and sisters. I say let him run. Also, he had songs. Laid Back really began, if you step back a little bit before that, before they began either album, they were had a meeting to start talking about like a new album. And Greg had been working, working on Queen of Hearts. He brought that in. He was very, very proud of the song Queen of Hearts. And the band rejected it immediately. Yeah, it seemed like that really hurt his feelings. It really hurt his feelings. Greg once said, I couldn't find the quote. I know for sure he said it, so I didn't use it in the book. But Greg just one time said, I'm not going to say who was the one who shut down that song, but his initials are Butch Trucks. (laughs) (laughs) So I never talked about it with Butch, and I couldn't find the quote, but I'm absolutely sure Greg said that. So, yeah, it did hurt him. And so he was like, well, I know this song is good, so All My Brothers Band doesn't want it. I'm going to record it. And I think that his concept of a solo album really grew out of that. I don't think he began with the solo album concept um, other than I want to record this song. That wasn't a time, you know, people weren't just going to put out a single. So I guess it inevitably meant that he was going to do a solo album, but he didn't have that much vision on it. He wanted to record that album. He started with a couple of sessions. He went down to Miami um, to Criteria Studios. He recorded some stuff with the band. He brought down Bill Stewart and Barry Oakley was there for some of it. And Robert Pops Popwell. He brought two bass players and a drummer, which really makes no sense. And I, you know, I asked Bill Stewart, like, well, why did he do that? You know, and he said he didn't know what he wanted to do. You know, he had no idea. He was just, I, he had this Vegas concept. I want to make a solo album. Um, most of the tracks that actually came out of that session that we've ever heard um, are solo acoustic things. And they came out, um, there was a great two CD collection called One More Try that I worked on with Kirk West. 
Uh, Greg ended up hating it, and there was some other corporate stuff that happened. So it came out and disappeared really quickly in, I think, 1996 or so. But then they put a bunch of those songs out again on the um, expanded layback. So at least we've heard some of them. But that was sort of a bust. And he did some sessions in New York. That was sort of a bust. Then he came back to Capricorn uh, make, to make it and was working in Capricorn Studios. And he was sort of doing the same thing, just working with Bill Stewart, and it was going nowhere. Um, worked for a couple of days. And Greg said he was going to burn the tapes. Um, I think he probably was just being melodramatic. But, I mean, it does reflect that he just – he was it was nothing that he was happy with. And then um, Bill Stewart said to him, well, why don't you just get Johnny to help, who was sort of the staff producer. And so Sandlin put together the band that became laid back. Um, so it was Tommy Talton and Scott Boyer on guitars from uh, the band Cowboy. Bill Stewart mostly on drums. There were some other people who came in and played some. Charlie Hayward mostly on bass, who was a young bass player then, who ended up going on and playing with the Charlie Daniels Band for 40 years. Um, but at that point was a young guy um, who had played with Alex Taylor and with Dr. John. And then for piano, he called Chuck Lavelle. Um, who had been around Macon, but but had just like lost his gig with Dr. John, not not just because Dr. John went off the road for a while. So Chuck didn't have any gig. So he went home to Alabama and had just gotten back to his parents' house when he got a phone call from Johnny. He said, Would you like to play at a Greg Allman solo album? And he said, The answer is hell yes. So he like had a meal and got back in his car and drove back to Macon. Um, and that obviously proved to be very fortuitous for for both of them. So it's one of the great paradoxes, I guess, of this era that Greg, in some ways, was such a mess, was barely able to function at times, drove everyone crazy with his passivity, sometimes didn't show up for recording sessions, and, you know, using a lot of drugs and alcohol. Is he going to be reliable? Blah, blah, blah. But but was also recording two incredible albums at the same time. <laughs> and so... Uh, would it have been really different if he had been involved? Probably, but it's hard to say because the the centerpiece song of this new album, solo album was Queen of Hearts and the Allman Brothers had already rejected it. So who knows what he would have done. He did bring in um, Come and Go Blues, which is the one song on Brothers and Sisters that could have been on either album. That definitely could have slid, slid right into laid back. I don't think anything else, you know, really fits that criteria. So I, in a weird way, although it wasn't planned, I think they needed to do both of these simultaneously. For That's how they were able to keep functioning and stay together. Up until I read this book, I honestly thought Come and Go Blues was a Robert Johnson cover. Oh, interesting. <laughs> I, I was reading the book. Went, Wait a second. Greg Almond wrote yeah. that? My whole life, I had thought that was, for some yeah. reason, I thought that was well, a Robert Johnson cover. One of Johnson the most cover. incredible things and moments of my career Um and I just relived it yesterday because I was going through these old tapes. I interviewed Greg in 1996, I think, or, not, or, or 95 or 96 in a hotel room in Chicago. And um, it was really late at night after his gig and probably the best interview I ever did with him. I interviewed Greg a lot, but he was really, really loose and open. And I think we had been doing a bunch of stuff and he trusted me and knew me and was very intimate because we were in his hotel room. And the interview was supposed to be for Guitar World Acoustic. And and um, so I brought my guitar with me and he was supposed to demonstrate for me how to play the riff to Come and Go Blues, Midnight Rider, and maybe just those two songs. And um, 
So I brought the guitar and he he de- he tuned it. He showed me the tuning. He took out his little finger picks and put them on, and he played Midnight Rider riff, um, the the solo version on Laid Back, which is different. And then he played showed the riff to Come and Go Blues, and then he paused and he just played and sang Come and Go Blues. Um, wow. It was just two of us sitting, you know, facing each other. Uh, it, it was incredible. So. Yeah, that that was a really that was a special moment for me. But that whole that song was a special song for him that held like a real place in his heart. All right. Speaking of special songs, Ramblin' Man is the one that brought them, like I said, from a cult following to the masses. It's still heard on classic rock radio. So is Jessica, by the way, one of the few instrumentals that you'll you'll hear played on classic rock radio. But it seems at times that song really got it got under their skin because it didn't sound like the other stuff and it was kind of like that's the that's the hit that you have to play which is kind of a conundrum the crows are in every now and then with stuff like she talks to angels right but at the same time do you think they would have been able to continue on at the level that they wound up getting to without rambling man no uh no, no they wouldn't have gotten to that level without rambling man but it is worth noting and, and uh, when you read the book, you'll see this, um, it, it, you know, they were pretty popular before Ramblin' Man and Brothers and Sisters came out. Um, the Brothers and Sisters didn't blow. I mean, it did blow them up. It didn't blow them up from nowhere. Um, I mean, they had already remember before it came out in that summer, they played two shows at RFK Stadium with right. the Grateful Dead. 80,000 people over two days. Six weeks later, they played Watkins Glen. 600,000 people came to hear those bands. We're, we're coming up on the 50th anniversary of Watkins Glen. Um, probably like the week or so this people hear this. Um, and so they were pretty big. Um, and, and so if they hadn't had the hit single, they still would have been pretty big. I, it's hard to say how big or, you know, would they have been out playing stadiums up and down by themselves? Maybe not. Um, would they have been playing stadiums with either the Grateful Dead or Leonard Skinner? I, I think they probably would have. Um, but it 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 brought them so much success and and maybe in some ways accelerated their inevitable decline as well. It is it is true. Um, you know, there was a certain amount of resentment. I don't think there was at that time, though. I, I tried really hard to dig into that, and nobody really has any memory of that. I, you know, Dickie. Well, Butch later, you know, grew really bitter towards Dickie. And after they split in 2000 and everything, and Butch told me, and I think this is in One Way Out, you know, Butch would always say, oh, you know, Ramblin' Man was so country. It wasn't an Allman Brothers song. We we thought we were recording a demo, you know, that Dickie was going to try to sell to, country, to, to Merle Haggard or somebody. Um, and that's just not true. Uh, it, it did begin sort of like that. Uh, in fact, what I gathered doing this book is that Dickie was the one who said this song is too country. Maybe we should cut it as a demo and I'll try to sell it to uh, Hank Williams Jr. or somebody. Um, and everyone else in the band was like, no, this is a great song. You're not giving this to anyone else. So in the moment when they heard it, they all knew it was a great song. And when they recorded it, they all knew it was a great song. And, you know, it was the second song that that Chuck recorded with them and the last song ultimately that Barry Oakley recorded with them and they knew when they cut it it was great I mean I've talked to everyone now who's in the studio and they they finished the song now they didn't 
they all knew it was a little weird uh, in the sense of being quite different from their catalog. But nobody was like, oh, this song is too weird. They were like, this song is great. It's different and it's great. Um, but that was also, if you think about it, always a hallmark of the Allman Brothers band. I mean, think about One Way Out to Jessica to uh, Liz Reed to Midnight Rider. I mean, they're, they're all quite different. Um, and so that expansive scope, I think, was always part of it. And they just pushed it further with Ramble Man. Well, in the book, it talks about Dylan said he thought it's one of the best songs he'd heard. Yeah. Which I mean, well, that was a great. I I didn't. Uh, yeah, the, the full story there. I didn't. I, I, I didn't. You know, maybe I should have made it go a little longer. But Dickie was sitting in with Dylan, and I think it was '95, off the top of my head. The, the proper date is in the book. Um, and when he showed up to sit in with him, they had known each other over the years and had a nice visit. And you know, Dylan said, "So you you know, are you going to play?" And he said, "Sure, man. You know, what are we going to play?" And Bob said, "Why don't we play Ramblin' Man?" And uh, Dickie was floored, you know, and really flattered and happy. And he said, okay, uh, let me get a pen and paper. And he started, because they had decided they were going to swap verses. And he started writing out the lyrics. And Bob said, what are you doing? And he said, I'm writing out the lyrics for you. And he said, you don't have to do that. I know the lyrics. And uh, Dickie was sort of floored. And he said, it was one of the best songs I'd ever written. I should have written that song. Wow. Uh, you know, so so that was... Um, I think super, I mean, of course, super gratifying for Dickie. There's no think about it. Uh, you know, any any songwriter would, would you know, be pretty pleased to have Bob say that. Just the fact that he knew the song, you know, I think is actually, it, it is mind-bending. It's good to think about Dickie. You know, it's, it's funny to think of Bob sitting at home going, oh, Lord, I was born around the man. Good line, Dickie. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I'll I'll leave everybody with a teaser before we discuss the crows for a second. There's a great story in there that involves Greg Allman, Jimmy Carter, Grits, Country Ham, and Blues Records at four in the morning <laughs> at the Governor's Mansion. So yeah. that's a good that's a good teaser. And and the Jimmy Carter thing to me is fascinating. And yeah. my favorite my favorite sidebar though in the whole book is the Cameron Crow stuff because Almost Famous is like a top ten movie for me because I am so jealous of him. Uh, what he got to do. And I'd always heard that it was loosely based on the Almond Brothers and there's some other bands mixed in there. But reading it, it almost sounded like the exact script of Almost Famous. Down to, you know, you had you had the one person that wouldn't do the interview and you had to fight for the interview and you, yeah. you finally got the interview. Yeah, thank you for bringing that up too. I, so I read my audio, I read the audio book um, last week and uh, it, was, it was fascinating for me. Uh, you know, I have to say, reading an audiobook is challenging. Um, uh, it's the second one I've done, but it, it was challenging, but it was wonderful for me because it, it reacquainted me with the book. And I read that chapter on Almost Famous, and I uh, I was almost choking up during it. And, and I have to say, like, at, at the end of that chapter, I had to pause for a minute, and um, both because the story itself moved me, and, and just frankly, if I, if I could be honest, um, I felt like it was maybe the best thing I've ever written. And I, I was really uh, moved <laughs> both by the story and by the fact that I pulled it up. I mean, I, I was sort of like, wow, you know, good job, dude. Um, yeah, I it's, it's an incredible story. I'm really, really proud of having it in there. I'm, I'm glad you picked up on it. I hope other people do. It's a fascinating story. I really, really appreciate it. Cameron Crow embracing 
this book. He was really, really helpful. I interviewed him several times. I caught a couple of errors in his in, in things he had said, and he was so impressed that I when I pointed them out to him, because believe me, he's someone who tries to to get things right. Uh, it's just you know over the years, a couple facts didn't quite line up. So yeah, I mean it's it's a great story. It's it's really wild, and aside from any of that, I, I think it illustrates a lot about Greg. And when and his state of mind at that time and what he was all about. And I'll tell people it also involves the ghost of Dwayne Allman sitting in a chair. Yeah. 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 There's a moment where, where Greg says to Cameron, my dead brother sitting in that chair laughing at you. <laughs> uh, yeah. Uh, yeah. It's a, it's a heavy thing. I talked to Cameron, as I said, multiple times. Um, and I talked to Neil Preston, photographer. Um who was there. And, and, and as Cameron said, um, you know, there was so much going on in that room at the same time, you know, it was because Neil was taking pictures and, and uh, I have, I have several of his photos from that night and from other times on that tour in the book, which I'm really excited about, including a really cool picture of uh, Cameron and Greg. So you got the advanced reader doesn't have photos, but the photos are, are pretty awesome. Um, so yeah, the, the, the Greg's, you know, Cameron Crowe's first Rolling Stone feature cover story is happening. The Allman Brothers first Rolling Stone cover story is happening, uh, which really meant something then. Neil Preston's taking the photo that's going to be on the cover of Greg's memoir in 40 years and almost famous is basically being written although of course he didn't know that at the time and that was september 26 1973 um after a show at the winterland in san francisco uh, i guess technically it was september 27th because it was surely after midnight and that september 26 show was also the first time that kirk west shot the allman brothers which only means something to like allman brothers insiders but for for those of us who, who know kirk's body of work and relationship to the band it means a lot so um it was a special night and i was i was really 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 glad to be able to tell that story as thoroughly as i did all right so there's another band from georgia that went on to have a great deal of success by the name of the black crows when did you first cross paths with them i'm sure you're like everybody else you heard shake your money maker but when's the first yeah. time you you guys actually met oh boy well let me think about that what year did shake your money maker come out 90. in 1990 right yeah yeah so i was living down in florida when that came out i saw them fairly early on that tour i thought they were great then in February of 91, um, I started working at Guitar World. I was really excited about the Black Crows. I hadn't dug like super in, but for me, um, anytime a band that's in my world of music <laughs> became popular, it was a great thing for me because it made me more relevant. You know, I was doing, you know, like the Allman Brothers, you know, were great, but they weren't like the center or they weren't a young band that was happening and of the culture, you know? So um, I was excited when Fish took off. I don't love Fish's music, although I really like Trey. But it was good for me to have a contemporary band that it mattered to write about. And the Crows were sort of the same. They were a little tricky from a guitar perspective because at, at the time, uh, boy, I, th this is going to lead me. So the first time I really met them, just to cut to the chase, was on the Southern uh, Harmony Tour down in Philadelphia. I went down to the Tower Theater. I had met them briefly a few days before that. Um, I was in Chicago with Kirk West. Kirk still lived in Chicago. I spent three days with him 
ghostwriting a story. It, 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 this is also relevant to everything else because that was really the start of where I transitioned from being just a, a normal journalist guy writing about the Allman Brothers into being an Allman Brothers insider. I had met Kirk and become friendly with him. Um, he respected my work and et cetera. He was the tour manager for the Allman Brothers, titled Tour Mystic, also the archivist and uh, historian who had spent at that time, he still said he was writing a book about the Allman Brothers. So trust me, this gets back to the Crows, I promise. He he did tons of interviews with them, with the Allman Brothers guys in the mid-80s. And then hadn't gotten the book written. They reformed in 89. They eventually hired him. And he just had to shelve the book because he then was an employee of the band. Um, so I had been, he had told me about that. So I kept saying to him, why don't you just write a chapter, you know, and we'll run it in Guitar World. And he finally said, um, listen, uh, I can't, I'm not a writer and, and I don't have time to like become one for this because I'm, you know, we're busy and, but I would, I would co-write it with someone. So that became me. Um, I flew out, spent three days with him and, and, and he loved the story. And that's when I sort of crossed a bridge into being friends with Kirk also, because we had spent three days and then, then I started being really backstage and hanging out with him and a lot happened. But the third night of my three days there, the Crows were at the Aragon Ballroom. And so I went to the show. Um, it was fantastic. Great show. Uh, I was with my good friend, Art, and we were roaming all around. And uh, I had, like, all-access backstage passes. But we were having so much fun. And uh, we were pretty high and stuff. And so I was like, I don't, I can't really go into, like, a backstage room and try to talk to people Turned out to be sort of a fatal error because um, Kirk, I found out later, like we hadn't even talked about it, which is, is kind of funny, but Kirk was there. And those guys loved Kirk, you know, because of his Allman Brothers connection. And he had done photos with them. And just a couple of weeks later, maybe even the next week, I went down to uh, the Tower Theater, saw them again. And that was supposed to be for a cover story. And it went completely off the rails. It got really kind of ugly. Um, I'll have to come on another time and tell you that whole story. I I actually um, want to write about it. I've talked about it with Chris um, just a few years ago. I did a, a live backstory events interview with Chris. Mm -hmm. And we talked before the show. Uh, we were hanging out and it was all very friendly and stuff. And so I thought, well, maybe I'll just bring this. <laughs> I didn't know if Chris would have even remembered it um, or if he did remember it, if he had any idea it was me, because it was a big deal for me. Um, it might have just been like a Wednesday night for him. I wasn't really sure. Um, he absolutely remembered it, um, sort of apologized. And we we had a long talk about it. And 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 it involved the photographer, Paul Natkin, um, who they was there. They flew, we flew in from Chicago at their request. Um, and, and just to make a really long story short, and another time I will come on and tell you the long story. It was supposed to be a cover story with with Chris and Rich, and Chris wouldn't pose for the photo. And so the whole thing sort of blew up. And uh, I got really, in fact, you know, your podcast, of course, is called Amorica. Um, I couldn't really even listen to Amorica when it came out. I, it's a great album, and I've come around on it, believe me. But at the time, I was still really shaken by this whole thing <laughs> i couldn't couldn't listen to the crows for a few years because it just 
you know, it was it was difficult. It, it, and and I look back at it, I see things I could have done differently too, believe me. And um, it all would have been different in this era, like with cell phones and inability to like talk to other people. But I was like alone, pretty young, new at my job in the basement of the Tower Theater and had to make decisions and, you know, whatever. So um, it, it was sort of ugly. But um, Paul Natkin had told me that um, he's talked about it with Chris and Rich repeatedly, and they want to write about it. And Paul has these great photos of Chris with his back turned. Um, Chris would only pose with his back turned, which was funny. You know, I thought it was actually quite funny, but I thought then he was going to turn around <laughs> and do the photos, but he turned around and walked out of the room. So it uh, became quite a quite an incident, quite an ordeal. And uh, they seem to want to talk about it. it Paul has the photos. I got to got to figure out the right venue to write about it, and we'll come back and talk about it. So yeah, that was really the first time I met him. And then because it did go kind of sideways, I never really tried to meet them again for years until um, some of the various Rich Robinson solo projects um, I, I, you know, interviewed him for, and you know, so I've gotten to know them more in recent years. Um, so, I mean, recent being like the last you know 10 so you you know you talked about working for guitar world and 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 obviously you're a guitar player and a musician why is mark ford not a household name i mean first let me just preface it by saying i i totally understand the question and mark is is great but i, I know a bunch of other great guitarists like i could tell you who are in household names it's just you know it's partly personality type too i mean mark you know, at the height of his, um, I guess, what should have been his fame, you know, the height of the band's fame, he was battling his own substance issues. He was a member of a band that clearly, well, let me put it this way. As part of that same story, I was supposed to do a big interview with Rich and Mark, and Rich came to the interview alone. And um, I talked to, I guess it was the road manager or somebody, and I was sort of like, Hey, this is supposed to be Rich and Mark. And he said, well, you know, I guess they want to make it clear who the important guitarist is. That's not a direct quote. Uh, he didn't use the word important, but, but, you know, that was the message he was, that was the, that was the gist. Uh, I, I want to be a little careful, especially with this audience who I know really care. Um, I don't want to be clear. That's not a direct quote, but that was the the message. So I think that Mark was in a situation at the height of his, power as a player and or, or you know and, and playing the most popular music of his career where the band didn't necessarily want to promote him and i'm not sure he was capable of being promoted in that way because he was really battling addiction stuff and i think his own personality he's pretty withdrawn so i don't know you know the i mean i love blue floyd also it was a great band with with some of my buddies alan woody and you know and 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 woody uh, had his, you know, Woody started that band in a way because he was, you know, sort of bitter that that Warren was playing in Phil and Friends, and he wanted more of a, um, you know, something else to do as well. But that led to something great. So I don't know. That's a there's a lot. That's a lot of information that that's not exactly giving an answer. But I think I think it's a combination of his personality. And his and his substance things and just the situation of that band at that time. And if it could have lasted longer and gotten to the next stage where people were more or less sober, maybe he would have been, you know. Well, I know we obviously appreciate him greatly and, and love that time that he was in the band. But then you talked like Charlie Starr, Phil, you know, he 
did yeah. three shows, three or four shows with the Crows. And I'm just like, you know, what was that like? And he's like, it was amazing. And you hear Charlie state say that like when Magpie opened for Blackberry Smoke, they came out and did like, can't you hear me knocking together? And he's like, man, I'm, I'm on stage with Mark Ford. And one of the things he said was that man doesn't play a lot of notes, but the ones he does matter. Yeah. Like I said at the beginning, I totally understand why you're asking that question. And it's unfortunate. It seems that the magpie stuff didn't, you know, didn't end really well. But I, I just say it's unfortunate partly because it probably makes it unlikely that he'll pop back up with these guys. But who knows? You know, who would have thought this would be happening? I'm not going to write Mark off. Um, I know he just played some shows. Um, I would go see him anytime. And um, he's a great guy to hang out with. Uh, like, you know, I think the world of Mark as a person and a player. All right, another band from Georgia. Before we kind of wrap this up, that has some some of the same sensibilities on Brothers as Blackberry Smoke. Mm-hmm. Uh, have you seen them a lot? Oh yeah, I know Charlie really well. Great band. Uh, Charlie's a great person. You know, great guitarist, great frontman, songwriter. Um, I, I love everything they do. My only criticism of Blackberry Smoke, and I've told Charlie this, is just like I'd like to hear them rip it up like one song a night. I, they're pretty restrained, but that's also cool because that's really a big part of their music. Yeah, I, I like them a lot. I like their intent. Um, I think you can just hear, and you know, if you ever see Charlie, will sometimes he does some acoustic shows with mm-hmm. Benji Shanks, and he's put up um, lots of clips of him playing acoustic, even like bluegrass and bluegrass style. He's he's a great guitar player, um, all this very well balanced, and even though obviously he doesn't play uh, bluegrass in Blackberry Smoke, you can hear that that he has it in him. He's not playing everything he knows, you know, and. And that's something that was similar to, to Dickie Bats and and to Mark for that matter. Uh, they're all really different players, but it's it's there is it, it creates a little bit of almost like a a tension, the good tension or a little mystery of like you know that these guys can do more than what you're hearing, and that that's cool. You know, so it's like they're doing what they're doing because they're choosing to. I love him. I think I think the world of Charlie has also as a person and a player. And I'm doing a big event. July 28th in Atlanta at City Winery with the band um, End of the Line. I'm really excited about. Um, and I've been talking to Charlie forever about him playing at it. And they're going to be out of town now playing at the Caverns. So we were both really bummed that he couldn't participate. But he's a, he's a big supporter of this book and uh, of, of my work as I am of theirs. So. Well, the last time I saw them, Luther Dickinson got on stage with them and they played Southbound. Oh, great. that's great. I would have loved to have been there for that. That's that's awesome. All right, we, Alan. I told you earlier we do a rapid fire five questions at the end. It. What's the one Almond Brothers show you wish you would have seen? <laughs> I should have a re- ready answer for that. I'm gonna have to go with a Dwayne show. So um any anything with Dwayne at the film Maurice. If it was one, it would be February 1970 with Dwayne and the Dead, uh or the Almond Brothers and the Dead when Dwayne and a bunch of the other guys sat in with him. All right. If there's one Almond Brothers record you wish they could get a mulligan on, what would that be? Well, it depends what you mean by mulligan, because if you mean take the exact same album and just re-record it, I would say their first album, because it's an incredible album. The songs are just incredible and they're the bedrock of what the band did. But I think the production is somehow a little it's a little stilted and they were all new in the in the it was their first time in the studio for most of them and all of them together. So um, I would have loved to hear them re-record that even a year later, much less like two years later. If you mean a mulligan, like an album to just throw out, 
Um, it would be either if they're Arista albums in 1980 and 81, either one would be fine. Just take them both and get rid of them. All right. So you talked about them playing with the Grateful Dead extensively in the book. Other than the Grateful Dead, who would have been your dream bill with the Ahmed brothers? Oh, geez. My own personal dream bill would be um, e- either the band or Little Feet. Little Feet is a band that a lot of people were turned on to by the Black Crows covering uh, Willing yeah. and, uh, and stuff like that. All right. Question number four. What's your favorite Black Crow song? It's got to be something from Southern Harmony. I guess Sometimes Salvation, probably. Yeah. It's a great solo by Mr. Ford yeah. on that one. Yeah. I like right. the whole song. I like the tension, the build up to it, the stop. I like I like the love Chris's vocals. And then that all leads into that killer solo. All right. So we always ask people one off the wall question. You're obviously a journalist and have traveled a good bit in your life. What's your favorite city for food? Ooh, my favorite city for food. Well, uh, my favorite city for food in America would have to probably be New Orleans. Los Angeles is sort of a sleeper in there. Um, I haven't spent near that much time in Los Angeles, but God, I've had some good food. Uh, incredible Mexican food, incredible Asian food of every stripe. Um, and then uh, if, if I expand it, you know, I lived in China for three and a half years, probably Chengdu, Sichuan, because I love hot food. I love Sichuan food. And um Eating Sichuan food in Sichuan province was a holy moment for me. And it didn't, it, and it delivered. There's a great street food culture there. Um, you can get these noodles and hot wontons and stuff all over the place. Like you, you don't have to try that hard. Um, you can just walk down any street and there's be a little restaurant or booth that has rest food that would be like the greatest Sichuan restaurant in New York. All right. And I have just a few quick questions from our patrons. Randy Kaler asked, do you think Derek Trucks and Warren Haynes would do a project again in the future? Um, I'm going to say yes, and and I'll add, I really hope so. And hi, Randy. I, uh, we've interacted. They both say they want to. You know, I've discussed that with both of them. And I think something magic happens anytime they, they play. Whatever Tedeschi Trucks have been playing their runs at the Beacon, I usually talk to Warren and, and say, please text me if you're going to go to the Beacon. I'll do everything I can to be there because um, I try to – I like to be there whenever Derek and Warren play together. And um, he has done that. Thank you, Warren. And uh, I've been able to be there for a bunch of those. And it, it is magical. And they both know that. And so I'm going to say yes, although I don't really have any indication that any concrete step towards that happening has ever happened. All right. David Hall, who hails from Albany, Georgia, down there in Almond Brothers land, he says Jack Pearson is an overlooked part of the band. Any Jack Pearson stories? Well, Jack is is great, um, and and I agree. I mean, he's overlooked part of the band because he was only with them for a couple of years, and was sort of a weird period, um, you know, in between Warren uh, leaving and then uh, Derek Trucks coming in. So it became a little bit of a blip to people not paying attention. But Jack is, by almost everyone's uh, estimation, one of the greatest guitar players around um billy strings recently shared a clip of him playing with with jack and sort of you know more or less doing a we're not worthy thing so um i mean jack is just a great player the, you know i'll tell you one story with him is that he was with me uh i was uh, the only time that i ever became on the receiving end of dickie's famous temper i've heard so many dickie stories i was only on the bad end of it one time 
And um, it was on the bus riding um, in Columbus, Ohio, or it might have been Cincinnati. Anyhow, uh, riding from the hotel to the venue. Luckily, it was a fairly short ride. And it was just me, Jack, and and Dickie. And we were having a great time just talking guitars. And then uh, <laughs> I asked Dickie um, if we could feature his guitar in the centerfold of Guitar World. You know, we said this thing, Collector's Choice, was a centerfold poster. And he said, sure, you know, that'd be great. I'd love to do it. And we had been talking about the guitar. And he was telling me why he loved it and the history of the guitar and where he got it. This is Goldie, his, his gold top. So we talked about it. He said Kirk could take a photo and we were all good to go. So I took out a notebook and started writing down what he had said. And Dickie just turned to me and he said, what are you doing? And I said, I'm, I'm writing down what, what you said about the guitar. And he said, well, this isn't an interview. This is just us talking. And I said, no, I understand, Dickie, but you just said we could um, feature the guitar. So I just figured I'll write this down so we don't have to, uh, I don't have to bug you again and get you on the phone and everything. And he really got aggressive with me. Uh, he kind of loomed over me. I was Jack and I were sitting on the couch on the bus, and he was standing. And he came right above me in a very threatening way. And he's like looking at me, and he said, "You got to understand the difference between an interview and a talk." Mm-hmm. And, and again, this was nothing sensitive. This is a hundred percent only about a guitar. Um, and we've been having the friendliest, nicest chat. And Jack, who was pretty new to the band, was sitting next to me, kind of like, holy, you know. And Jack is the nicest, most polite guy in the world. And I think he was torn between sort of wanting to defend me a little bit and being like, well, I can't get in the middle of this, which which I agree. And then um, the band's manager came over and he said, what's going on? And and Dickie started saying to him, you know, uh, is this an interview? You didn't set up an interview. You didn't tell me there was an interview set up. Why is he interviewing me? And and then, you know, the manager yelled at me and I was like, I can't believe this. And it was, it was quite uh, scary. And then we got to the venue and everyone went in and the manager came back to me and he said, Hey, you didn't take that seriously. Did you? And I was like, uh, yeah, I was took that seriously. I was pretty scared. And he said, um, you know, that, that was just a test for me. That was all about what I come and, and rescue Dickie. Like, he's like, I don't care. I don't care about you. You didn't do anything wrong. Don't worry about it. And um, Jack and I never talked about it at that time. I think Jack got off the bus. And then years later, when I was writing One Way Out and I interviewed Jack for that, I said, hey, Jack, you remember that time on the bus? And he said, do I remember it? Of course I do. I thought he was going to kill you. I didn't know what to do. <laughs> So we talked about it and had a good laugh and, um, you know, but that's, that's Jack greatest guy. Um, you know, I've been fortunate enough to to hang out with him a bit and, uh, I've understand that he's no longer playing live because he had some health problems that led him to quit the Allman brothers, some tinnitus in his ears. I'm very, very sorry to hear that. Um, a big loss for the music world. And I, I wish Jack send Jack my best wishes. And finally, Ian, who couldn't be here with me today, wanted me to ask you, how exciting was it to get that treasure trove of interview cassettes from Kurt West? Well, it was incredible. Um, That was was exciting on several levels. So when he told me about it, I mean, I knew about it because we had talked about it years ago, but um, I never asked him about it with One Way Out. And he just said to me, you know, when I was telling him about this book, would you like my to use my interview tapes? And I was like, uh, yeah. <laughs> and so I went to Macon um, and then I got them home and um, I was pretty 
intimidated because I just thought, what the hell am I going to do? I have them all over my house right now. So um, <laughs> this is just one little section. This is one of four sections. I mean, I mean, again, I'm just trying to give you a scope. There's four of these. Wow. Um, and they're full. Um, they're not all full right now because I took some out and I'm refiling them. But um it was an awesome responsibility. It was an awesome opportunity. Also took it as an awesome responsibility. I started digitizing them myself and sort of taking notes as I did it. And I realized um, this is going to take forever. I can't do that. So I found someone uh, here local to me and paid them to digitize them and give me digital files. It was very time consuming <laughs> to go through them, but in the greatest way. And uh, I've been going through them again this week, clips from them on the audiobook, which is going to be... Uh, I think an amazing experience for people. So yeah, it was it was everything. Um, e even though you know the total quotes in the book and then the quotes from from these interviews, it's it's not that high. Whatever percentage it is, doesn't come close to reflecting the importance of them because um, some really really unique stuff. I mean, uh, Greg talking about Dickie and how much he admired him for playing slide in, in the aftermath of Dwayne and for D Dickie holding it together. Um, you know, Dickie talking about the success of Ramblin, just, you know, and, and, uh, you know, obviously people like Bill Graham and Steve Mazarski and Greg who are deceased and Butch now, as much as I talked to Butch, I mean, I couldn't go back and ask him new stuff, obviously. So yeah, it's, it's incredible. I mean, I felt very, very honored. And, um, you know, we began, I, I told you about really how we first became close. And and now Kirk is really one of my best friends for the last 25 years. Um, I love him. Uh, he loves me. <laughs> you know, it's, it's a very, the relationship is really important to me. Well, the book is Brothers and Sisters. It's out July the 25th. Ian and I have pre-ordered several copies. We're going to give them away. We've also ordered some a couple of vinyl copies of Brothers and Sisters. We're going to give that away. I'll get you some more copies from the publisher if you wanted to giveaways. And we have some really cool posters. Sure. Yeah, I'll get you a poster, you and Ian posters, and then we can do some for giveaways because, uh, you know, appreciate your support. And I know that um, you guys and everyone who listens to this podcast are real music fans um, and love this music the way I do. And I, I appreciate that, admire what you guys do. And you know, that's 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 why I started doing all this stuff in the first place. I feel lucky. And something Cameron Crowe said to me in, the, in, in when I interviewed him that's in the book really resonated with me. It's exactly how I feel. He said that he always felt like he was getting the access he got in service to the fans. And he was lucky to get like a front row seat or be a fly on the wall. And then the whole thing was to try to bring his readers to that that same experience. And, and that's exactly how I feel. So um, I appreciate, you know, people like you guys and, and everyone who's listening to this. I know if you're listening to the Amorica podcast, you love music, you're hardcore. And um, I appreciate it all. I mean, that's that's me and that's that's my people. All right, Alan, give us a song to play out. It can be any song from anybody, any band. You just pick it. Well, I guess just because we're talking about brothers and sisters and everything, let's do Jessica. I mean, I think it's just. It's the greatest song, and everyone will leave here feeling happy, even if they weren't happy. That's the the power of that song. All right, so we'll play out with a killer version of Jessica. Our thanks again to Alan Paul for coming on, and we'll throw it to our producer, Jason. Stay tall, everyone.
Well, we're one hell of a good crowd. Thank you. Thank you so much.